What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having an amazing week so far. We're going to cover two specific topics on today's podcast. First up, we'll talk about the Rogers Center. This is where the Toronto Blue Jays play their home games in downtown Toronto, and it's getting a $300 million makeover. So we'll run through some of the history and the economics behind this decision. And then secondly, we'll talk about the NHL draft lottery. The Chicago Blackhawks won the number one overall pick for this year's upcoming draft, and it's already making a huge financial impact for them. I'll run through some of the numbers and explain why this matters. Let's get right into it. All right, so I don't know about you guys, but I am a sucker when it comes to stadium renovation projects or construction projects or whatever it is relative to the infrastructure of professional sports teams. I think it's fascinating the economics behind this, whether it's taxpayer money or privately funded money. I also just love not only renderings, but how these projects turn out and then the fan response to these projects. And one of the biggest ones is going on right now that not many people are actually talking about. Maybe that's because it's north of the border in Toronto. Maybe that's because it's Major League Baseball. Maybe it's because it's a renovation and not an entirely new stadium. I don't know. But today we're going to change that because I think it's fascinating. So the Rogers Center used to be known as the Skydome. This was in uh, downtown Toronto. It opened in 18 or 1989, sorry. And it's now known as the Rogers Center. So this is where the Toronto Blue Jays play. And when this stadium opened, it was known as one of the world's most technologically advanced sports stadiums. Take the dome-shaped roof, for example. I don't know if you guys have seen this. If you have not already seen it, just do me a favor and Google really quickly after this podcast, Roger Center, you know, roof opening or closing. It is absolutely fascinating. The dome itself is eight acres big. It covers eight acres. It reaches a height of 282 feet. And it has four steel panels that collectively weigh 11,000 pounds and can be moved within just 20 minutes by the push of a button. They uncover over 90% of the seats in the stadium, so you, you don't have a roof over 90% of the seats. And it was the world's first stadium with a fully retractable roof. Now, here's a fun fact for you. When this stadium opened, there was a two-hour primetime TV event on CBC to celebrate the opening of the Skydome. It included songs written about the retractable roof. It was this huge thing. There was a comedy skit and everything. And their game actually got rained out because everyone wanted the roof open, the retractable roof to see how it played, and it got rained out. But fast forward, you know, 35 years or whatever it is, and this 65,000-seat stadium formerly known as the Sky Dome is not nearly as impressive. Obviously, the roof is still pretty cool, and the engineering behind it is awesome. But nothing else has necessarily changed, and that's the problem. Nothing has changed. The Sky Dome is now known as the Rogers Center. It has been sold four different times since its opening in 1989, and its latest sale price of $25 million in 2004 represented just 4% of the stadium's $570 million initial construction costs. Now, the interesting part about this is the debt load that was acquired during the building of the stadium. The stadium was projected to cost about $150 million to build in 1989. $90 million of that, the majority of that project, was going to be covered by the Canadian government. Now, I don't know how much of you guys are familiar with the difference in governments and, and, and funding, but Canadians are not nearly as willing to do sports stadiums as America is, right? That's become kind of a thing of America, right? Taxpayers are going to pay for stadiums across the NFL, MLB, whatever it is. Canada, it's a big deal, right? They paid $90 million for the stadium. But the problem was it actually ended up costing $570 million. So again, the initial projection of construction costs was $150 million for what was known as the Sky Dome previously. It ends up costing $570 million to build, which when you adjust for inflation is $1.4 billion. Obviously insane. 
And what happened there was now they had $400 million of debt by 1993. So by the mid nineties, now the stadium has $400 million debt. Obviously the price is getting reduced and reduced and reduced because the equity value is declining. There's so much debt on this project. So eventually it gets acquired for $25 million. And when you actually look at the stadium, it's not that nice anymore, obviously. The outfield concourse was notoriously dark. People complained about it. Some of the seats didn't even face the stadium or the field. There was a serious lack of premium experiences. And look, it was just old, right? When you look at the new stadiums today, there is an emphasis put on the experience. They want things to be luxury. They want fans to have access to bars. They want checkouts. They want everything to be wireless. They want internet access to be there. It's like first class everything. And it's really hard to do with an old stadium that that wasn't built for 35 years ago. So if you look at the oldest ballparks in Major League Baseball, the Rogers Center is the seventh oldest ballpark in Major League Baseball. It's 34 years old. The oldest is Fenway Park, over 100 years old. Wrigley's also over 100 years old. Dodger Stadium for the LA Dodgers is 61 years old. Oakland Coliseum, we know what's going on there with Las Vegas. They're trying to get a new stadium for a decade now. That's 57 years old. Angel Stadium is 57 years old. Kauffman Stadium is 50 years old. Rogers, obviously 34. Tropicana is number eight, 33 years old. Guaranteed Rate Field is 32 years old. And Camden Yards is 31 years old. But here's the problem. Not only is the experience not great, but the Blue Jays are getting better. They have a really good young core of players and their attendance was up 50% last year. So the year prior, they had 1.75 million fans visit the stadium. Last year, they had 2.65 million. So an increase of almost 1 million fans last year, 50% increase in total attendance. And what do you need? The stadium needs to be better, right? People want a good experience when they come to the ballpark. If you want to sell out tickets, if you want to sell out sponsorships, if you want the team to be rocking when they're at home, this is an important part. So rather than building a new stadium, the location's quite good and everything else, they're going to do a renovation. This is ongoing right now. Most of it is actually already done. It's a $300 million renovation in total. The first phase out of the two phases has been completed, and the second phase will be done by 2024. These updates include a whole host of things, but I'm going to run through a couple of them just to give you an idea. The new stadium update is going to have a 7,900 square foot weight room, which is three times the size of the old one. This weight room is going to include a bunch of different things. It has everything from pregame strength and recovery areas. It has a cardio room. It has soundproof recovery rooms. It's got everything a player could imagine. It is state of the art. In the newsletter today, you will see pictures of the weight room. It's absolutely incredible. It's unlike any other Major League Baseball team today, and it looks great. They're also building, and they've already built, a raised bullpen with new warm-up areas. And the interesting part about this is that the fans are right on top of this. The fans are literally feet away from the visitor's bullpen. Now, look, there's a bar right there, too. This could eventually cause problems, but it's interesting. It's unique in this experience that I've never seen at any other stadium outside of some of the older ones, right? But there's also a new seating area for players, so you can sit kind of underground with a field-level view of the game. It's indoors. It's different, and it's really cool. It looks really nice. Outside of that, they're also building a new spouse's lounge and a two-story playground for the player's kids. So this is just an area basically where the, the families of the players can hang out. It's indoors again. It's really, really, really nice. It has a feeding station, nap rooms. It has a two-story tree house. It has a TV area for the older kids. And obviously the spouse's lounge, which is where the wives and, and girlfriends and stuff hang out. So these updates are reducing the capacity of the stadium by 7%. So the capacity is moving down to 41,500. You're giving up 7% of the seating in the stadium. But more importantly... It's going to take one of MLB's oldest ballparks and turn it into one of their best. 
Again, the newsletter today is going to have a bunch of pictures, so you can head there if you want to see the visuals of this stuff. I highly recommend checking it out, even if it's just the pictures. You can look at the video of the actual stadium today. It's a drastic difference. It's going to be really, really, really nice. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the Blue Jays are, are upgrading everything. Their spring training facility in Florida is now one of the best in baseball also. I tweeted about this, I think it was either last year, maybe in 2021 when it was actually updated, but they used to have one of the worst spring training facilities in all of Major League Baseball. It was like four to six fields. The grass wasn't even well-kept. The facility was terrible. There's a famous Google Earth shot of the fields that it just makes it look terrible. It looks like a high school facility or somewhere you would play travel ball at when you're like 10 or 15 years old. It looked awful. They just built a brand new one. It's in the state of Florida. It was actually subsidized by the local government because they signed a deal to stay there for 25 years. They're going to be playing their games there. They'll practice there. It has a 115,000 square foot building. It's on 65 acres. The weight room is massive. There's indoor recovery, hot tubs. There's a pool. There's a barber shop. It has a huge weight room. It's got everything you could imagine and everything you would want out of a spring training facility. So if you look at this in totality, not only are the Blue Jays getting better, I think they're actually third in the AL East right now just because it's so competitive, but the team's pretty good. They have a really good young core that they're going to lock up for an extended period of time. Obviously, Guerrero and other people like that are really good players that should be good for the next decade. So the team should be good. The spring training facility is really good. They're focusing on player development, and now their stadium is going to be much better too, not only for fans, but the players. And people underestimate, right? Like the taxes aren't great in Toronto, and maybe people don't want to play in a different country. But this stuff matters to players. I talked about this with the Phoenix Suns a few weeks ago when Matt Ishbia bought the team. They have one of the top flight facilities in the NBA today. Not only is it amazing, it's brand new. It's this massive, brand new, amazing facility, but it's right next to where all the players live. That is an underrated part of all of this, right? Like players take this into consideration. Obviously, the money is the most important, the quality of life, where you live, if your family's comfortable, the taxes, everything like that plays into it. But so does the quality of the facilities. One of the things I always gave the New York Knicks crap about was that the facilities in, I think it's in Westchester. It's like north of the city by like up, upper New York and, and Connecticut even. And players that live in the city, none of them live in the city because you have to commute to the facility and then you have to commute to the games. It's pretty far away. Take, for instance, the Brooklyn Nets, who their games are in Brooklyn and their practice facilities in Brooklyn. So Kevin Durant, when he was playing on the Nets, he actually lived in New York City and he would commute, you know, 10, 15 minutes outside of the city into Brooklyn to go to practice and play games. And it's drastically different for players. And I think that what Toronto is doing is really smart because now you're not only focusing on the fans, but the players are going to enjoy this stuff too. Their families are going to enjoy it and it's going to up the experience for everyone. But more importantly, the economics behind this is pretty fascinating. The $300 million is 100% privately financed. Like I said before, the Canadian government is not paying a dollar, not that they would anyways, but all $300 million is privately financed. And if you look at a renovation compared to building a completely new stadium, Toronto is actually getting a pretty good deal here, right? The new stadiums that we've seen either proposed to be built or be built are anywhere between like 50 to nearly 100% more expensive than what Toronto is doing. If you look at the new ballpark that the Athletics want to build in Las Vegas, they're saying that's going to cost $1.5 billion. The Texas Rangers just built a brand new stadium called Globe Life Field by Populous. That was $1.2 billion, opened in 2020. Truist Park in Atlanta was $1.3 billion. Lone Depot Park in Miami, $630 million. That opened in 2012, right? Inflation has obviously changed drastically in the last decade, so that would be considerably more too. Even Target Field in Minnesota was $555 million. Yankee Stadium, which opened in 2009. It's crazy to think how long ago that stadium opened. $2.3 billion. 
City Field with the New York Mets also opened in 2009, $830 million. Nationals Park, $700 million in 2008. So again, these stadiums are, are you know, anywhere between like two to three to four times more money than the renovation of Rogers Stadium, of Rogers Center. Obviously, you're getting a brand new stadium, right? Everything is different. The infrastructure is better and so forth. Globe Life Field is one of the nicest stadiums I've ever seen. It's absolutely incredible. They just built a stadium in Japan too, Populous. They're the the, the architecture firm that does a bunch of NFL stadiums. They've done Premier League pitches and, and stadiums over there. They've uh, obviously done Major League Baseball stadiums. They do an incredible job and it looks great. But on a bang for your buck basis, $300 million for what Rogers Center is attempting to do right here is pretty damn good. Right, you're not displacing the team. Is open up this year. The next phase of the renovation is going to be done by the 2024 season, and it's really impressive. Like I said, I recommend everyone checking it out. I geek out on this type of stuff. I love these projects. Not only the money behind it, but I love looking at the pictures. I love seeing kind of how this stuff changes. Sports has changed over the last few decades. It's an entertainment business today. Fans want premium experiences. They want luxury experiences. They want options. At other venues, these things are based on entertainment. They hold concerts, they hold conferences, they hold other events, right? If you look what's happening in Nashville, they're building this brand new stadium. It's going to be the highest paid public funding ever used for a U.S. sports stadium. And they're doing it because they want to host a whole other thing of events, right? They're going to have the Final Four. They might have a Super Bowl. They're going to do all these different things because they're building this new stadium. It's an economic driver for everything else in the area. And if you don't do it as a city, someone else will. There is a fixed supply of the number of major league teams. There's a fixed supply of professional sports teams in the U.S. in general, and all of these cities want them. So kudos for Toronto to getting a deal done. They are going to make the stadium much nicer. It's already much nicer. The fans are enjoying it much more, and I'm sure the players are too. This episode is sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is the all-in-one finance app, helping you bank, borrow, invest, and save. SoFi's mission is to help members achieve financial independence and realize their ambition all in one app. It's the single app you need to get your money right. I'm a SoFi member and I love it. SoFi is legit and they comply with the strict regulatory standards of the FDIC so you can be sure that your money is safe. Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to learn more. That's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano. All right, let's get back to this episode. All right, the second thing I want to talk about today real quick is the NHL Draft Lottery. So for those that haven't already seen this, on Monday night, the NHL held their annual draft lottery. It's just like the NBA, right? You have a chance of getting the top pick and so forth, and the names were announced. So the Chicago Blackhawks won the first overall pick in this year's draft. Second was the Anaheim Ducks, third Columbus Blue Jackets, San Jose Sharks, Montreal Canadiens, Arizona Coyotes, all the way down the list. But the most important thing that you need to know for the basis of this conversation is that the Chicago Blackhawks won the first overall pick. And that's especially important this year because there is a generational prospect coming to the NHL next year. Connor Bedard is a 17-year-old who has put up one of the greatest junior hockey careers ever. He literally had 100 goals in 83 games across competitions this year, and he is absolutely on fire. He scored 143 points, 71 goals, and 72 assists in 57 WHL games this year. That's the most points per game averaged by any WHL player since 1991. He also led Canada to a gold at the World Juniors this past winter, scoring 23 points in seven games. It's absolutely incredible. Even today's best players like Connor McDavid and other people like that are saying that he is a generational prospect. People should be excited about him. He could potentially be one of the best players ever, and he will undoubtedly be an amazing talent right when he gets to the NHL. He has the skill set today to do it. He's only 17 years old, 
and he should be extremely exciting. The point about this and me talking about this specifically is the business behind this move. We talked about it the other week when Aaron Rodgers got traded to the Jets. What did we say? The Jets saw a 400% increase in season ticket sales immediately after that. That's what Woody Johnson, the owner of the New York Jets, said. And the Blackhawks are seeing something similar. So the Blackhawks sucked last year. Obviously, they got the number one pick. You don't do that by being good. They also had a low attendance. Everyone knows the Blackhawks, right? They were winning a bunch of Stanley Cups last decade, but they're no longer good. So their attendance last year was really poor relative to what it had been. If you look at it on kind of like a total basis of average attendance per game, they're actually decent. But when you do it on the capacity of the stadium and a percentage of that capacity, they were third worst in the league, right? So only two teams averaged less on a percentage basis. They filled up 84% of their stadium on a given night. Buffalo was worse and San Jose was worse. Anaheim was actually better than them. Florida Panthers were better than them. Ottawa was better than them. All the other teams were better than them. The arena seats 20,500 people. They averaged 17,167 fans per game last year. And again, like these numbers are kind of a little bit gimmicky, right? If you look at the Oakland Athletics, they say every game, they're like, oh yeah, we sold 2,500 tickets. We sold 5,000 tickets, 9,000 tickets. And then if you look at the stadium, there's only a fraction of that many people there. The way this stuff works is it's tickets sold, right? So not everyone goes to the game or whatever it is. It's a little bit different per league on kind of how they count it. But just because someone says, hey, this was our attendance, don't always take that at face value. You have to look at the actual, the, the ratings underneath that and see what people are counting. Again, any way you slice it, Chicago was not a good team last year and fans stopped coming to the games. So now they get the number one overall pick. And what has that done? People are so damn excited about this player that season ticket sales have popped off the charts within 12 hours, 12 hours of securing the top pick. So that means throughout the night, because the top pick was selected last night. So throughout the night, the following 12 hours, the team sold $5.2 million in season ticket packages. That's 1,200 full season plans, 1,200. So that means whatever, maybe some people are buying two, three, four, five for a family, but 1,200 full season ticket packages were sold in 12 hours for the Chicago Blackhawks for a team that got the number one overall pick, $5.2 million in season ticket sales. Again, this is not the NBA. This is not the NFL. It's the NHL, which has a smaller fan base than those leagues. It's not like LeBron James, but from a hype standpoint and a quality of play standpoint, it could be considered up there, right? He is considered to be a generational prospect. And one of the funny things that I was laughing at, actually, I was remembered by this as a friend. Someone told me was Anaheim actually was second in the draft too when Sidney Crosby came out. I mean, that's absolutely insane. This prospect is being compared to Crosby, of course. It's also being compared to Connor McDavid. And people think he's going to be a generational prospect. So look, we don't know how good he's going to be. We don't know what he's going to do for the Chicago Blackhawks. We don't know if they're going to be winning Stanley Cups, making the playoffs, or even getting better. But ultimately, he is an exciting player, and that's what fans want to see. And this brings me back to like the point about superstars in general, right? We talked about this the other day with Steph Curry, Patrick Mahomes. We've talked about it with Aaron Rodgers and other people of that nature. It's that the superstars are typically the biggest players in every single sport are typically underpaid, right? If you look at them and everyone says, oh, they make $20 million a year, $50 million a year, $60 million a year. That's way too much money for a kid's game. And the reality is they make that much money because the owners of these teams are making a multiple of that on the back end. Right. If you think about Steph Curry, the one we talked about the other day, he's making $50 million a year, the highest paid player in the NBA. That franchise has increased by six and a half or $7 billion in value since he got there. He hasn't seen that. Obviously, he's made hundreds of millions of dollars with no downside. He has no risk. He doesn't have any equity in the business, whatever it is. But you can't argue that he doesn't deserve more than that. 
Now, the reality of this is that it picks up some of the lower tier players. So the average minimums across these leagues are probably higher than those players might deserve for their contribution to the team and the equity value of those organizations. But at the end of the day, my point is simple. The best players in these sports are worth their weight in gold. They drive everything from ticket sales to sponsorships to merchandise to concessions to everything around these franchises. And when you look at the NHL specifically, it's really important. And that's because they derive, I think it's like 40 or 44% of their revenue comes from ticket sales. So when you're the Chicago Blackhawks and your stadium's empty last year, you're making drastically less money than you are in a good year. And the fact that you're able to sell $5.2 million in season ticket packages, which includes 1,200 more people in those seats every night, that's huge, right? If you just looked at their attendance last year, which again was 17,167, with 15 extra or 1,200 or even 1,000 extra people, you're now at almost 90% capacity, up from 83% capacity. So again, this makes a drastic difference. It hypes all the other players up. The atmosphere gets better. You're not only selling more in tickets, but you're selling more in merchandise. You're selling more in concessions at every game. The sponsorships are worth more because more people are at the games. Again, everything changes when you get good players. Just look at Pittsburgh, the run that they went on. They built one of the best fan bases in hockey. You could argue that it was better, good, whatever it was before Crosby. But Crosby, Malkin, all those guys built a dynasty there for a long period of time. They were making the playoffs every single year. Their games were selling out, and they built one of the best fan bases in hockey because the team was good. I am always a fan of make the team really, 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 really good, build it into the community, and good business will come from that. I think Matt Ishbia in Phoenix is doing that. He's That's the approach he's taking. He has already said, I want to own this team for the rest of my life. My point is to build a community to ingrain this around the fans, build a fan base as big as I possibly can, and the money will come from that, right? We've already seen it with what he's done on the RSN side, the regional sports network side. They terminated their deal. Actually, it was done, so they didn't terminate it, but it ended. Diamond Sports had the right of first refusal or the right to negotiate a new deal, and they said, screw you guys, we're going straight to free TV, so it's no longer going to be on cable. If you have local television, you can watch their games for free. And part of this is like, okay, you guys are trying to get some good PR out of this. You're not able to sell this to anyone else anyways. There's no other bidders in the market. No one's going to pay you a considerable amount of money for this. The RSN business is relatively nascent right now. It's dead. It's dying. And you're now doing this to save face. It's going to open things up. But the, the end goal is simple in my mind, right? It's like, let's expand the audience as big as we possibly can. Let's bring as many people in and let's really build this thing from the ground up. And then there will be a bunch of different monetization off options from there, right? You can sell different things. You can do different partnerships. You can do sponsorships. You can even do a media deal eventually. And my guess is they'll do some of that stuff, right? Like maybe they don't make the games on cable free forever or on, uh, on, on TV forever. Maybe they eventually buy a network and start streaming the games themselves. I know some NBA teams are currently looking at doing that and will probably do that if their RSN deals go south. So again, this stuff is changing by the minute, but the, the overarching themes still hold true across sports, right? The sports business is booming right now. Athletes are getting paid more than ever. Fans are attending more games than ever. Viewership is higher than ever across virtually every major professional sports league. And the players are driving all of this. And we've already seen it. Aaron Rodgers, a freaking 20-year veteran in the NFL, is doing this. And it's the same thing with a rookie who has not even been drafted yet. Everyone's already just presuming he's going to go number one overall. He has not been picked. He's not in the league. He has never played a game. He could get hurt tomorrow, but he sells tickets today. It's really, really, really impressive, and it's fascinating to me. 
As always, I hope you guys learned something with this podcast. Again, I do three of these every single week. So make sure to subscribe to the feed on Apple, on Spotify, on Google, wherever you're listening to this podcast and share it with your friends. Please do me a favor also and review the podcast. Leave a review, rate, review it, et cetera. Let me know what I'm doing well, what I could be doing better and so forth. I am committed to doing this for the long haul. This stuff I love. So I will be here every week, three times a week, giving you the most informative information in the sports business. Again, I hope everyone has an amazing week and we will talk on Friday.